Hey, Artie here. So, funny story. Just after we recorded this, B and I got news that Verso sold out of copies of Health Communism that you can buy directly from them, the publisher. So, the good news is, Health Communism is already headed to a second print run. The less good news is it might be a little bit harder to find until that second print run is released in the coming month. So you can still get Health Communism at bookstores that order copies um, on a couple of websites. And to help with that, B is going to do a thread on Twitter with links to bookstores that have it in stock, particularly small independent bookstores. There's a link to that thread in the description of this episode, or otherwise you can find B on Twitter at Real Lands End. Also, if you're an independent bookstore that has copies and wants to be added to B's thread, send us a DM and let us know, please. Um, anyway, without further ado, thank you so much to everyone who's ordered the book so far, and of course, everyone who supports and has supported Death Panel. Um, we really can't wait to hear what you think of health communism, and without further ado, here is B&I's conversation about the book to celebrate its launch. the death panel to support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes order a copy of health communism or request it from your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so today is just myself and Artie, and we're so excited that Health Communism is out. Um, we thought that we would take the time, just the two of us, to talk about the book, why we wrote it, what we hope people will be able to get out of it, and we'll take the opportunity to share a couple parts from um, the text itself. Okay, so, you know, we do this podcast about the political economy of health um, called Death Panel. <laughs> the one you're listening to. The one you're listening yeah. to. Uh, and before COVID happened, for example, we talked on the show a lot about the 2020 Medicare for All debates, and we talked about it very differently from the rest of the left. And part of that was because we were talking to comrades from Canada and they would be like, what is this shit that Americans seem to think that the Canadian healthcare system works and is right. like amazing? Like, yeah, like Bernie Sanders would be taking a busload of seniors to Canada, like across the border from, I don't know, from Michigan into Canada or something like that. And uh, would be vaunting the Canadian healthcare system. And meanwhile, we're, you know, talking to people in the death panel discord server or elsewhere who are basically like, this is ridiculous and overstated the canadian healthcare system is absolutely inadequate even though you know americans are saying like oh they have socialized medicine like oh, everyone ha everyone has socialized medicine but us right yeah there's a really common argument like in the the richest country in the history of the world we don't even have socialized medicine and and you know, it's it was sort of frustrating, I think, for for friends, um, especially friends who are disabled in Canada, who would be like, well, yeah, I mean, drugs are cheaper here, but I still can't get care because it's a capitalist healthcare system. Um, it's socialized in, in sort of name only. And I think they're right. You know, what good is it to demand socialized medicine if it still comes with rationing and long wait times and the kinds of austerity built into it? that um, is not a function of the system sort of only being able to operate under austerity, right? Because it's often naturalized as like, oh, well, socialized medicine just has to be austere, right? Like right. it's too much care to deliver to too many people. But that's actually not the truth, right? A lot of the policies of austerity, a lot of the things that lead to socialized medicine systems not being supportive of people who have, for example, like uh, chronic illnesses like myself who are disabled. Or like the NHS turning away trans patients, for example, or giving them long waiting lines to the point that effectively it's impossible to get HRT or something. So a lot of that austerity, right, you know, as already saying, like, it's sort of a feature of a lot of different socialized medicine systems, right? And it's one of the reasons that, for example, disabled people were pretty 
skeptical about Medicare for all, especially during 2020. I mean, if if we're saying that we want a system like the Canadian system, then we're saying we want a system with austerity, with this kind of care that that maybe works really well for people who don't need a lot of care, but doesn't work at all for people who need a lot of care. And we talked to friends from the UK who are like, you know, actually, I'm having to move to Germany because it's a three year wait time to get HRT or you know, I've been ordering HRT online and doing it myself, DIY. And, um, you know, even more recently, we've heard from folks in the UK with long COVID who are having to go to private long COVID clinics because the wait times for these clinics for MECFS were already so long that, you know, the large additional amount of patients that need this type of specialized care have just tripled or quadrupled the wait list. And this is the kind of thing that You know, I think it's important to understand that when the NHS was set up, it was set up not to be generous. It was set up to reproduce the logics of capitalism within its structure. There was an imposition of a kind of artificial market in its design. And so one of the things that we've tried really hard to do on Death Panel is to push an idea of socialized medicine that not only, you know, pretends that we can deliver care, uh, you know, to everyone, but actually does try and deliver the care to everyone that they need that rejects these kinds of austerity frameworks that we're told are necessary in order to keep things running efficiently and productively. Right. So I think what B is uh, getting at essentially is what health communism is, essentially what the book health communism is, what we tried to write is something to sort of point the left towards more of a radical anti-austerity politics of health and healthcare that hopefully, like, I mean, we hope really in a similar way that I think we've, you know, heard from many of you just about, for instance, what we do on the podcast, what we do on death panel, um, in this, that in a, in a similar way to the kind of anti-austerity and sort of all care for all people ethos that we try to project here, that can sort of give language and tools and and full meaning and articulation to why it is so important to reject all of these austerity frameworks. To be blunt, for example, looking at the fact that within the United States context, right, for example, whereas so many people from liberals and progressives to including, you know, many people um, on the left or who are, you know, socialists or communists or whatever, will often say things like, you know, every other country has, you know, has like some form of socialized socialized medicine. Right. And I think what we're trying to say is that some form is very important. Uh, (laughs) The, the, the some form part of quote unquote, some form of socialized medicine is very important that for the most part, the vision of, of what we, you know, truly need in terms of achieving all care for all people in terms of achieving something that we could actually call socialized medicine, which we argue in the book would itself in its implementation by separating health from the systems of capital from capitalism itself be fundamentally threatening to capitalism, right? That, that essentially all of the ways that the state, that the capitalist state specifically uses health and mobilizes different industries around it, or even just instrumentalizes language about health as related to one's place in the social order or one's ability to participate in society, all of those things, because health and capital are so fundamentally linked that to achieve something like what we could, you know, actually call socialized medicine would be fundamentally threatening to the capitalist state. And so as a result, as a left in general, or just, you know, generally politically, we need to stop thinking of health or health care as this sort of section of policy or something that's siloed off mm-hmm. from everything else that is as sort of uh, ancillary or even secondary perhaps to like the bigger goal of the revolution or something, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That actually achieving socialized medicine is something that itself would be revolutionary. Yeah, and I mean, just to sort of give a, an example, right? You know, these sort of engineered shortcomings, this artificially imposed scarcity like long wait times or the existence of separate private clinics or uh, private insurance that you can buy over and above the coverage offered by a socialized medical system. You know, 
These are all examples for why universal healthcare or socialized medicine couldn't work, right? This is often used, especially within the disability community, to sort of say, like, well, you know, maybe actually the private market is a good thing because it offers us choice, right? Because it gives us the ability uh, in some capacity to, um, you know, take our business elsewhere if uh, our medication isn't covered. But that kind of choice, right, you you can't separate (laughs) that framework from capitalism. And part of the problem is that you know, I, I understand that that fear of rationing. I'm disabled. Um, I'm chronically ill, and I have experienced a lot of problems within both the private healthcare system in the U.S. and under Medicare in the U.S. You know, Medicare is not perfect, but socialized medicine is not always inherently going to lead to rationing. This is a kind of false idea that I think is really built into a lot of the ways that we talk about what health reforms even are, right? The idea of like, oh, the point of a health reform is to lower healthcare costs. Or the problem with the US healthcare system is not that, you know, it's racist and it does not deliver care to people and it is oriented around not care or therapeutics, but extraction and profit, right? But you know, the idea is that, oh, you know, we just uh, simply kind of can't care for all of the people who need the care. And it's a, it's a fundamentally sort of social Darwinist idea about how an efficient system survives by culling the weak and by only delivering sort of the most care to the people who will be the most productive. And I, I get where people are coming from where, when they think, okay, well, if if we were to socialize this, right, if we were to sort of pool all the costs, then the incentive would be to lower healthcare costs overall. And we know that that would put people like me under, you know, sort of tremendous austerity. But I think what, what sort of is missed here, and I get where people are coming from, but I think what's missed is that the source of that austerity, the source of the rationing in universal healthcare systems does not come from the socialized aspect of it or the attempt to sort of socialize the financial end of a a single payer program. It comes downstream of the fact that these socialized medicine systems exist within capitalist states and exist under the constraints of health capitalism. And so, you know, at a minimum, these these systems were never designed or intended to do or be what we are demanding, which is all care for all people. And so we wrote Health Communism to do a couple things. And one of those is to try and help people understand that, as already is saying, no system of truly socialized medicine currently exists. But also, I think more importantly, and in a broader sense, We're asking people to understand all of the ways that health is instrumentalized beyond health care in terms of labor power, in terms of housing, in terms of environment. Health is instrumental to capital. And without these kinds of frameworks to challenge both the siloing of health and the naturalization of austerity when it comes to the delivery of health care or the distribution of health resources, there aren't a lot of frameworks that exist to try and challenge these ideas together. Right. Yeah. And this part is really important because, for example, you know, I mean, we end every show with, as everyone knows, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. And the Medicare for all now part obviously is very important, but some is something that I think one thing that we don't maybe even talk directly about enough is that sort of when we say Medicare for all, Yes, we're referring, of course, to like proposals similar to ones in recent years in the U.S. that are things like a single payer healthcare system, getting rid of health insurance companies because insurance companies, as a matter of course, you know, we do not believe have a place in society. I mean, fully, yeah. full one stop. of the reasons we started Death Panel is we were so frustrated that the conversation about whether or not private insurance had a right to exist took up so much air. Right, exactly. Private insurance absolutely does not have a right to exist. Nope. Should absolutely not exist. No way. But in, a, but in a much broader sense, regardless of how you identify sort of politically, one of the ways that I think that we can start to understand, for instance, a system like um, Medicare for all as the floor, right, as sort of the floor of our demands, which is to say, you know, recognizing that changing the system to be like no more health, no more private health insurance companies, a single payer should be the floor of our political demands, should be the very, the very base. Because, you know, when we say Medicare for all, we want 
something much more expansive as sort of outlined in health communism. We want to secure all care for all people. We want to fundamentally remove health from its relationship to capital. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, one of the things that we have to, we, you know, basically spend a lot of time in the book is talking about all the various ways that health and uh, certainly healthcare, but mostly uh, health, that health as an idea is instrumentalized and mobilized by capital. What I mean by that is, for example, we talk a lot about things like deservingness frameworks, the um, ideas like the economic valuation of life, or uh, what we talk about in the book as sort of the uh, creation management and biocertification of a surplus class of people, um, meaning essentially a class of people who are not identified as uh, you know productive workers within the capitalist state. The surplus class is this idea of essentially looking at the many different populations of people that whether because of health ability, social norms, frankly, uh, or, or otherwise, these are populations that are marked as essentially non-workers and thus non-unproductive or um, drains or burdens, essentially, on society, and thus subjected to this sort of austerity framework that B is talking about, right? That we talk about that so many of the reasons that we talk about, um, for example, in US discourse, right, when we talk about the immense cost of a system like socialized medicine or Medicare for all, right? When we talk about those things, the people who are invoked are the surplus class, right? It's like, oh, what if these, um, what if there's just so much waste, fraud, and abuse or something in the uh, implementation of Medicare for all that you just suddenly have all of these, uh, these, you know, newly, uh, these people like newly claiming ill identity or something, mm-hmm. or like a malingering class emerges. <laughs> like what if the, 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 there's the specter of the ill essentially right. right? As, if, as if like everyone right now already gets all of the care that they need and that passing something like Medicare for all would not just like open the floodgates for people who have been rationing their own care for <laughs> yeah. probably their entire life to just get the bare minimum of what they need. I mean, This is like one of the things that we're kind of asking people to understand so much of the way that we think about all sorts of things on the left is really oriented around the identity of the worker. Right. And the worker is not the end all be all of who exists in the world. Right. There are many people beyond that identity. Um, And it's not like anyone who is not a worker is worthless, right? We're asking people to understand all the ways that health is instrumental to capital and the ways that that plays out in the way that we understand ourselves, you know, the ways that we're taught that if you're sick or disabled or a non-worker or non-productive, that you're a burden to the state, to society, to all of the people in your life. And even in the way that we hear things talked about, like the national debt to to the survival of the future nation, you know, this this kind of idea that the survival of, of society depends on austerity being applied to the surplus as if, you know, any money that's spent on collective care, survival and taking care of each other is money that just disappears or something. It doesn't, you know, become part of the economy. And and this is part of what I think um, we're really trying to challenge. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important to to understand in this capacity is that, you know, what people think of as health, right, is very different from the kind of health that we're talking about, right? Like people think of health as A measurement of personally where you individually are at with your own medical care or whether or not you have a a disease or not or diagnosis or not, what what symptoms you experience. But the kind of framework of health that we're pushing for is is an understanding that, that, that is really different from that because that understanding of health is a kind of personal capacity or quality that exists as a framework in order for it to be commodified, right? Like you cannot, like insurance companies do not have billing codes for clean air. Insurance companies do not have billing codes for housing free of mold or housing at all, right? And so, so much of what we think of as our own individual health is actually mediated by insurance formularies and what's been dictated as uh, what 
insurance companies will pay for, right? So part of what any project for health communism, which could use something like Medicare for All as a toehold, right? Because if you think about if we're defining health right now as an individual phenomenon partially based on what insurance companies will pay for, then creating one payer group within the United States, removing the role of insurance companies in determining what is health and what is not, gives us a kind of bargaining power and leverage to expand how we think of health beyond the capitalist frameworks that have really narrowly defined health away from something that acknowledges things like racial capitalism, the social determinants of health, um, empire, colonialism, you know, the way that we are sort of destroying the environment and the consequences of our conditions of labor on on our lives, right? And we can we can create what uh, the Socialist Patients Collective, to whom the book is dedicated, would have called a toehold towards something, you know, bigger and broader. You know, Medicare for All is a kind of first step. And so much of the way that it's talked about is as, you know, um, as an end goal. And that's not that's not the reason why people got excited about Medicare for All. No one got excited about Medicare for All because of the prospect that, you know, we could have a new and better insurance company that would be able to save a bunch of money. People got excited about the idea of the kind of freedom that could come from not having your health finance tied to your boss and to your workplace and not having the kind of imposition of the formulary that is really unique to your one specific plan. It's about finding ways to support each other and um, support our health as a collective phenomenon at a population level, not at the individual level that is dictated by private insurance. Right. And actually, so in that sense, basically, hopefully this book, you know, at a very basic level helps a lot of those people who I think, you know, were with us um, through 2020, for example, fighting for Medicare for all, um, realize a realize sort of like what could be at stake with a much bigger picture, with a much more expansive framework for how we think about health as something that is, uh, again, mobilized by capitalism, but also something that we can mobilize against capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the ideas that we're trying to sort of work with in order to help people understand this, this conceptual expansion that we're we're pushing for in health communism because in many ways what we're really trying to show in health communism is where some of the logic of austerity comes from and how all of it works and how we can resist these logics that we are compelled to frame our arguments around by our current political economy. So I think all of that is good preamble uh, to understand one of the first excerpts from the book we wanted to pull to read y'all today, which is from uh, the chapter called Surplus. The production of death under capitalism is well understood. Innumerable terms and theoretical formulations exist to define the endpoint of capital's immiseration, the one constant to human life that our political economy is particularly adept at expediting. Social murder is the term used by Engels and his contemporaries. Its deed is murder just as surely as the deed of the single individual disguised malicious murder, murder against which none can defend himself, which does not seem what it is because no man sees the murderer because the death of the victim seems a natural one since the offense is more one of omission than of commission. Likewise, statistical genocide or democide, Lauren Berlant called this slow death, mass physical attenuation under global or national regimes of capitalist structural subordination. The finality of death and the social imaginary as the ultimate conclusion of capital's violence can produce fantasies of a moral or ethical capitalism. This is arguably the dream chased by capital's true believers. With modifications to its systems, we can slow, slow death to a crawl, render statistical genocide statistically insignificant. With premature death, the imagined enemy of capital's internal narrative of its own beneficence, minor reforms become enshrined as a legible mirage. But the primary sites of violence under capitalism are not those that lead directly to death. They are instead the quotidian forms that situate capitalist belonging, the reproduction of norms socially as well as legally and administratively, abetted by a cynical din of knowledge production that institutionalizes logics of eugenics and austerity. 
For this reason, we focus not on how capitalism reproduces death, but on how and why capitalism keeps you alive. We consider what is elsewhere called administrative violence, in the words of Dean Spade, how law structures and reproduces vulnerability. We follow how those marked as vulnerable by administrative violence are not only immiserated, but also become the object of capital accumulation. Central to this is the figure of the surplus populations, the necessarily amorphous and indefinable category that is the focus of our project. How the political economy has evolved in the last century to maximize its exploitation of the surplus populations, pathologizing with one hand while generating capital with the other, is a process that must be understood by those mobilizing for health justice or health communism, and to begin to imagine a world free of the eugenic philosophy of capitalism. It is towards this understanding that health communism begins. The surplus population was initially defined in economic terms in separate writings by Engels and Marx in response to the moralizing demographic panics of industrial capitalism's early philosophers, among them Adam Smith and Thomas Malthus. Smith, the demand for men like that for any other commodity necessarily regulates the production of men. Malthus, a distinction will in this case occur between the number of hands which the stock of society could employ and the number which its territory can maintain. Both Engels and Marx, in referring to the surplus populations as capital's general reserve army, make clear that their formulation has to do in large part with the population of unemployed people who could otherwise be a part of the labor force. Engels refers to the surplus populations as keeping body and soul together by begging, stealing, street sweeping. It is astonishing in what devices this surplus population takes refuge. Health, disability, and debility are largely absent from early discourses around the surplus populations that Marx and Engels responded to, except in the cases of characteristic pathologization of the poor. Malthus again. The laboring poor seem always to live from hand to mouth. Their present wants employ their whole attention, and they seldom think of the future. Engels and Marx do, however, share concerns for the public health of the surplus population and the disablement wrought by industrial production. Engels' The Condition of the Working Class in England can be regarded as an early work of social epidemiology, locating capital's impact on the social determinants of health, just as the idea of public health was at its formation. Marx notes of the relationship between health, private sector industrialization, and the state that health officers, the industrial inquiry commissioners, the factory inspectors all repeat over and over again that it is both necessary for factory workers to have these 500 cubic feet of space per person and impossible to impose this rule on capital. They are, in reality, declaring that consumption and the other pulmonary diseases of the workers are conditions necessary to the existence of capital. A contemporary understanding of what it is to be surplus is necessarily more expansive. Major societal shifts in the late modern period discussed at length in our chapter Labor solidified the worker surplus binary in public consciousness in part by incorporating a conception of workers' health or disability as a central facet in their certification as surplus. The surplus or surplus populations can therefore be defined as a collective of those who fall outside of the normative principles for which state policies are designed, as well as those who are excluded from the intended entitlements of capital. It is a fluid and uncertifiable population who in fact should not be rigidly defined for reasons that we discuss. Crucially, this definition also elides traditional left conceptions of the working class or the worker. As we describe at length throughout health communism, the idea that the worker is not a part of the surplus populations, yet faces constant threat of becoming certified as surplus, is one of the central constructions wielded in support of capitalist hegemony. Similarly, the methods the state employs to certify delineations between surplus populations constitute effective tactics in maintaining this hegemony. An understanding of the intersectional demands of those subjected or excluded by capital constitutes the potential for building solidarity, which is definitionally a threat to capital. An understanding that the marking and biocertification of bodies as non-normative or surplus constitutes a false, socially constructed imposition of negative value is also a threat to capital. An understanding that illness, disability, and debility are driven by the social determinants of health, with capital as a central social determinant, itself constitutes such a threat. 
We argue, therefore, that in order to truly mount a challenge to capitalism, it is necessary that our political projects have and maintain the surplus at their center. While the surplus population does contain those who are disabled, impaired, sick, mad, or chronically ill, the characteristic vulnerability of the surplus is not inherent to their existence. That is, it is not any illness, disability, or pathologized characteristic that itself makes the surplus vulnerable. Their vulnerability is instead constructed by the operations of the capitalist state. The precarity of the surplus population is made through what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment. The deliberate manipulation and disproportionate dispossession of resources from black, brown, indigenous, disabled, and poor communities, rendering them more vulnerable to adverse health. Understanding the shifting social constructions of surplus under capitalism and the organization of this organized abandonment is uniquely illustrative of the imbrication of health and capital. At the time of its initial formulation, surplus populations are largely discussed in the sense of surplus constituting superfluous, another term wielded synonymously for this population at the time, or otherwise irrelevance, waste. We can see this literalized in early American labor benefits. The few national unions that offered a permanent disability benefit paid a sum equal to the meager benefit a worker's family would receive on the worker's death. A worker becoming disabled thus not only constitutively passed the boundary from worker to surplus, their social value following disablement was effectively as good as dead. This categorization and certification of surplus has become a focal struggle in the history of capitalism, socially reproducing a collective imaginary of who is a worker, who is property, and who is surplus, and to what degree of personhood each category is entitled under the scope of law. Those who are deemed to be surplus are rendered excess by the systems of capitalist production and have been consequently framed as a drain or a burden on society. But the surplus population has become an essential component of capitalist society with many industries built on the maintenance, supervision, surveillance, policing, data extraction, confinement, study, cure, measurement, treatment, extermination, housing, transportation, and care of the surplus. In this way, those discarded as non-valuable life are maintained as a source of extraction and profit for capital. This rather hypocritical stance, the surplus are at once nothing and everything to capitalism, is an essential contradiction. Liat Ben Moshe identifies this characteristic through the intersection of disability and incarceration. Surplus populations are spun into gold. Disability is commodified through a matrix of incarceration, prisons, hospitals, nursing homes. Jasbir Poir in The Right to Maim, debilitation and the production of disability are in fact biopolitical ends onto themselves. Maiming is a source of value extraction from populations that would otherwise be disposable. And so, you know, and part of what Artie and I are really trying to show in health communism and through this expansion of what surplus means, and again, why it's important to not really have this be a definable category, but have it be intentionally expansive, um, is where some of this logic of austerity comes from and how all of it, most importantly, works um, and how we can resist these logics of austerity that we are compelled to frame our arguments around by our current political economy. You know, these are the terms that capitalism demands of us. Rather than playing into it, we must refuse it. And so our hope is that this construction of the surplus population and to sort of walk people through both, you know, where these ideas come from and why they serve capital, I think, you know, can actually be a step towards building a new liberatory politics and praxis that does not just deem whole segments of the population as waste. You know, it's it's not going to redound to a singular push for Medicare for all driven by the rhetoric that single payer would be cheaper, right? Because doing something like that actually builds on this idea of the surplus class as waste. And right. if we want to sort of achieve our political goals, I think what's more important is not that Medicare for all would be cheaper, but that Medicare for all could be a path towards undoing marking whole segments of the population as non-valuable because they're, you know, considered non-productive life under our system of health capitalism. Right. Absolutely. Um, one way that I've been talking about this a lot recently 
Um, if you heard, for instance, BNI's appearance on Work Stoppage, go listen to Work Stoppage, everybody. Um, if you heard our appearance on on that, for example, you may have heard me um, tell this anecdote. But for example, one of the ways that I think it's um, just <laughs> nice, I think, to think about this in relationship to more um, current events, I suppose, mm-hmm. is Ashish Jha, right? The current coronavirus response coordinator for the Biden White House, right? Um, while we've talked about him plenty on the show in terms of being, you know, just sort of like they did, oh, go, you know, get me the guy from TV or whatever to tamp down dissent on the (laughs) coronavirus response and to, you know, assure everybody that everything's okay. Before Ashish Jha was that like CNN, you know, everything's going to be fine. Like put up your umbrella when it's raining COVID (laughs) kind of guy. Um, his principal thing was that he studied health systems essentially Mm -hmm. and, he was pretty adamantly pro, you know, capitalist health systems um, during notably, for instance, the uh, most recent big national Medicare for all debate in February 2020. For example, um, Ashish Jha gave comment to the Washington Examiner saying, quote, I don't know what the constraints are that are built into the Medicare for all spending. And without constraints, Medicare for all becomes unmanageable. (laughs) There are no countries that don't have constraints. The idea that everything is covered for everyone is unprecedented, unquote. And this is really important (laughs) because Ashish Jha is right. It is unprecedented. It is right. It is unprecedented. And it's not a bad thing to want something unprecedented, basically. What we're asking for is unprecedented. What we're demanding is unprecedented, rather. Um, And in many ways, you know, that's what we're trying to gesture at with health communism. We have thought so, you know, I, I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but just really as a left even we have thought so myopically about mm-hmm. what we should demand regarding health and healthcare, what we could do if we imagined a health communism, right? And so that is in, in many ways, I think what we're trying to push an inroads towards really what we're trying to, you know, provide language and, and um, a basis for really writing as, you know, I think we essentially tried to, to write a book that we you know, we, we realized that this was like a book that didn't exist. Yeah. Right. And so it was, we kind of felt, I think that it was our duty to, to write it. I mean, I wish this book existed when I first became sick. I would have not wasted so many years uh, thinking that I was worthless. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, relying on, on these sort of frameworks that we're trying to disentangle and, and tear apart here. Uh, these only pit the worker and the surplus classes against each other. And the only people who benefit from that are the ruling class or the owning owning class or the bourgeoisie, whatever you want to call them, the bosses, you know, the people committed to upholding capitalism. And there's no way to truly challenge capitalism until we challenge the commodification of health, because this false binary between worker and surplus, the idea that, you know, you can become certified to cross that transom and, you know, become from a strong worker, you know, with rights of a worker and with the sort of full rights of a taxpaying citizen to someone who is dependent, right, as a non-worker, as surplus. This is one of the most important components of all labor discipline. Any other type of labor discipline depends on this as the sort of undergirding structure of precarity that is constantly at risk. And so if we do not challenge this false binary, we will do nothing to not only help the surplus populations, but we will do nothing to change the conditions of labor that are making us sick and that are consigning us to slow death or in the context of COVID, much quicker death than slow death we were promised. Right. I think that really nicely sets up um, the second excerpt that we wanted to read, which is just um, the the passage shortly following after what uh, what B was just reading, which talks specifically about this um, sort of certification of the surplus and this the ideas of um, how we can sort of identify and sort surplus and how and how these identifications are essentially leveraged by the state to then 
go through the process of assigning people for social murder or slow death Mm -hmm. uh, or towards, um, for example, what um, Ruthie called in your uh, great interview with uh, with Ruth Wilson Gilmore organized abandonment. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, here is that uh, second section. In much of the following, we situate our analysis of the social construction of surplus through the lens of disability as one of the many contingent embodiments of surplus identities. Disability not only operates as one perceived extreme of the worker surplus binary, but is also understood within the capitalist political economy as constituting, or at least including, a state of being irredeemably ill or unwell. In this sense, it is a total ideological reduction of the subject into evaluation of what role they are certified as capable to adopt under capitalism. Far from being left as an abstract category, the state, including the constituent social reproductive apparatuses upholding it, has developed over time an array of tools to certify the exact boundaries of what qualifies an individual as surplus. For the surplus, this regime of biocertification shapes both how the state interacts with them and the boundaries of their participation in social life. In Fantasies of Identification, Ellen Samuels analyzes how certain forms of state assistance, resource allocation, or support are often understood within the popular imaginary as a kind of currency. These benefits are gatekept by abstract bureaucratic systems of eligibility predicated on the verifiability of someone's biological state and identity. As such, Samuels argues, the role of biocertification, namely the process of assuring that only legitimate claimants receive this currency in kind, is reinscribed with a simulated social banking function, reinforcing the idea that the process of biocertification itself is an efficient means of allocating economic resources. Biocertification is assumed to be a necessary gatekeeping mechanism or checkpoint to prevent the wasting of resources on fakers, cheats, imposters, and malingerers, invoking both a model of scarcity in which resources must be reserved for those who truly deserve them and a distrust of self-identification in which statements of identity are automatically suspect unless and until validated by an outside authority. The generosity of these currencies in kind is often extraordinarily overstated in the social reproductive imaginary. Cultural perceptions dictate a picture of disability, illness, and marginalization, which is not reflective of the material gains that come as a result of being biocertified for social welfare supports like the United States Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, or Medicare-slash-Medicaid. This is what Samuels describes as a tendency to commonly perceive these legible identities as lucrative commodities. The boundaries and borders of qualification are guarded by a combined medical legal authority and rest on the understanding that identities are readily measurable, verifiable, and fixed, ascribing meaning to a biological observation and institutions of authority which seek to standardize the line between social citizenship and exclusion. This constructed preference for standardization and biocertification arises out of the imbrication of health and capital. If the economy of health is to be bled for excess profit, then the fundamentally inefficient process of facilitating our mutual survival must be made to be efficient. The modern welfare state measures and quantifies metrics of individual health against a picture of the individual's economic resources and labor power in order to restrict the administration of aid. To determine eligibility for SSDI in the United States, for example, the Social Security Administration uses formulas and charts to transform bodily conditions into percentages of ability. Physical conditions of the body and its organs are clinically evaluated to determine their relative distance or deviance from an abstract ideal normal body worker. To the SSA, all impairments, symptoms, circumstances, and conditions are of equal value and attention. All health is equally neutral. This is because the severity of illness, impairment, or disability is not actually the metric the SSA uses to determine eligibility. The critical axis is instead the individual's relationship to work. What emerges from these phenomena is a shadow biocertification regime that hides in plain sight as a means test to ward off would-be waste, fraud, and abuse. Labor power is equated to bodily state, and health is measured through this contradictory lens. 
To the Social Security Administration, illness is only relevant in relation to whether and to what degree it impacts a person's capacity to work. As Rosemary Garland Thompson argues, this presumes that ill health, disability, and impairment are located only in the body and not also in the broader social, political, and geographical context that comprises the individual's social determinants of health. Impairments and disabilities are reduced to numbers on a page. Quote, on one scale, for example, limb amputation translates as a 70% reduction in ability to work, while amputation of the little finger at the distal joint reduces the capacity for labor by a single percentage point. Garland Thompson's critique of the disability eligibility schema in the U.S. questions the ability of the state to meaningfully measure such complex and dynamic situations as a person's health and worth using a precise mathematical relation. Labor power, social and material conditions, and bodily states are collapsed into a single metric, measuring all health along a continuum of relative currency. The ideological framing of wage work as a mitigating factor in an individual's eligibility for health and welfare benefits attempts to map economic valuations of life onto regimes of biocertification, as is readily evident in SSDI determinations. Social security disability eligibility is a legal process of decertifying a body for work, not the certification of a body for any type of qualifying disability or impairment demonstrating need for care and additional social supports. These notions have become replicated in social security and social insurance programs internationally. Countless states limit or adjust their benefits dependent on the amount of productive labor the individual has already participated in during their life. This has become particularly prevalent alongside the spread of social insurance privatization schemes by international financial firms, as discussed at length in the chapter Border. The authority of medical opinion is widely used as a means to measure the truth of a body's impairment and certify to the state's satisfaction that the benefit applicant is truly biologically incapable for work through no fault of their own. This arguably subjective perspective of medical authority is treated as if it is a visible and clearly quantifiable fact. The state relies upon the signifier of medical authority as a means of depersonalizing and depoliticizing the biocertification process writ large. Relying on claimed scientific or medical frameworks, biocertification schemes seek to identify and sort bodies, placing each within the context of their correct category, which is reflective of the intersections of their race, gender, citizenship, wealth, or ability as a means of validating the social truth of a person's identity. This framework assumes that a person's biological identity can in fact be scientifically measured, rendering their ultimate categorization or eligibility as if depoliticized, a procedural, objective, binary decision. An individual's material conditions or identity cannot be understood as in any way fluid or abstract under this biocertification preference. Existing outside of certification means categoric exclusion. Biocertification regimes assume that validating characteristics are readily obvious or apparent, falling squarely in the category of common sense generalizations, meaningful or not, about various observed metrics. Despite little scientific basis, strategies of biocertification are treated as fact and reinscribed through law and policy, leveraging medical authority to consolidate the power of the state to determine life chances, who lives and who dies. Importantly, none of this is to say that states of being, conditions, ailments, and so on do not exist. Far from it. Instead, it is to say that the intersection of those conditions of health, or simply of being, of states of existence, have become of significant use to capital in its demarcation of ontological boundaries within society and the resulting distribution of resources. Resisting biocertification does not mean resisting diagnosis or identification. It means resisting the leveraging of these certifications by capital and the state. This impact on an individual's life chances through the intersection of biocertification, public policy, and moralizing norms can be quickly ascertained through an analysis of who and what the state excludes from its policies. Dean Spade writes of one profound example of this in his book Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law. Quote, Proof of having undergone gender-confirming care, especially surgery, is required by the majority of ID-issuing agencies in the United States. 
However, the majority of private health insurers and state Medicaid programs have rules excluding this care from coverage, which means that those who cannot pay for this care out of pocket probably cannot get it and thus cannot change the gender on their IDs. For most trans people, these rules make getting correct ID nearly impossible. Not having appropriate identification creates difficulties and dangers when dealing with employers or the police and other state agents, trying to travel, attempting to cash checks. The most marginalized trans people experience more extreme vulnerability, in part because more aspects of their lives are directly controlled by legal and administrative systems of domination, unquote. The self-administered authority and expertise of the medical profession has been used as a fantastical ruse for the validation and verification of the various methods used to sort populations according to perceived biological difference. You can see the traces of the modern systems of evaluation and early policy regarding the state's role in care for people disabled by injuries of war. In 1867, petitioning the government for assistance on behalf of her disabled husband, Amelia Stewart stated, I present myself to you on behalf of my husband, who is a cripple for life. If you choose, you can send a man to see to the correctness of my story. As historian Jim Downs' extensive archival research notes, the government was skeptical of Stewart's testimony because she was black and was seeking long-term care admission for both herself and her disabled husband in a state hospital set up to care for freed people. Though her husband, Lloyd, had clear documentation of his disability, the state did opt to send several rounds of medical and bureaucratic representatives to certify the veracity of Stewart's story, an administrative burden put in place to help alleviate demand that outstripped state hospital resources. The scenario is one that still plays out for people on welfare everywhere who must frequently submit to evaluations to determine if their claimed need is still true and verifiable under the medical legal definition of need so as to avoid waste, fraud, and abuse of scarce funds. The idea of disability being a true and biologically verifiable category in the first place, however, is seemingly never questioned. What basis do we have to assert disability but consensus from the medical establishment and from medical professionals while, as a social construct, the guidelines of what qualifies are as changing and mutable as social conceptions of disability itself. As Kim Nielsen explains, the ever-changing, ever-slippery spectrum of what has constituted disability is almost overwhelming. Gender, age, race, marital status, behavior, family politics, the power of capital, and embodiments contribute to definitions of disability. The authority of expertise and the power that medical expertise holds over the survival of modern disabled people has roots in racial capitalism's corrupt framings, built from the idea that certain people were property and that the state was only responsible for caring for those deserving of its artificially limited resources. Engaging with and fighting back against these systems of power becomes, for individuals marked as surplus, a never-ending assault on deliberate austerity at the hands of the state. We reference austerity as deliberate here, in part because the surplus is subjected, always, to aspersions over its burdensome nature, its supposed value drain. But as we have mentioned, the surplus is not in fact the burden to society it is made out to be by state officials, representatives of financial capital, and bourgeois knowledge producers alike. The surplus has been in recent centuries a productive engine of capital accumulation. Thus to be marked as surplus is also to be marked for extraction. Yeah, and I mean, I think... This kind of role that the the medical legal authority has in the determination of sort of who counts as a valid person deserving of state resources and support and who does not count. Obviously, that there's there's a lot of problems <laughs> when you combine that with a system of healthcare that is managed through your labor conditions where we do not have a a universal care system, right? Because in order to qualify for SSDI, you need to be able to afford to build up the kind of documentation necessary to have the records to prove your disability. And you have to have worked in the labor force for long enough to, uh, quote unquote, earn it. Right, yeah. exactly. Which is not something unique to SSDI. SSDI. It's, yeah. it's something that we see in a lot of a lot of social welfare programs internationally, as as we say, but SSDI is an example we're using here. Yeah. And, and so I think what we're trying to do here is 
both challenge the role that medical authority has as a kind of gatekeeping mechanism, but also, you know, to lay out essentially what that function is actually within capitalism, which is this is a way of managing these artificially limited resources, right? If we're not going to commit to providing people with the care that we we have the capacity to do. I mean, there are so many, think of all of the jobs that go into restricting care. All of the people who work for insurance companies, whose job it is to uh, you know, implement administrative burdens, to deny care, to make patients jump through hoops, to make doctors spend the time doing that paperwork, all of the people who work uh, for the state doing Medicaid estate recovery, right? Coming in and taking people's homes to pay the state back for end-of-life care that was provided under Medicaid. You know, these kinds of jobs, they they have negative social determinants in and of themselves. I mean, what kind of harm to your health happens if you all day long, uh, your job is to de- deny people care, right? Like, Human beings are not evil. People who work for insurance companies do not enjoy having to do this, right? I don't think anyone gets that kind of satisfaction out of this. But these are the decisions that we make because we prioritize things like shareholder profits and the existence of insurance companies over, for example, you know, reorienting our our productive capacities in order to better deliver care, to better distribute resources spatially and um, along, you know, lines that aren't so dictated by socioeconomic status. And these are discrete choices. And I think one of the things that's really important, right, is that COVID is very brutally showing us a sort of accelerated view of how damaging these kinds of systems of biocertification are. One of the examples that I think is really interesting that we were seeing right now that Unfortunately, I absolutely expected to see is that you you see a lot of medical authorities right now weighing in on what exactly counts as long COVID or people saying, well, long COVID is not a big deal because, look, there there haven't been that many SSDI applications for long COVID yet. And, And of course, these kinds of frameworks might seem like, oh, we're just trying to manage, you know, who is verifiably actually sick with long COVID in order to treat them. But fundamentally, these kinds of restrictive capacities and this demand for proof, right, of verifiable illness, these do not benefit anyone. These benefit the extraction of of capital from the care relationship, and they benefit the artificial scarcity of of resources. I mean, essentially, you know, this is a this is a system that's not just applicable to long COVID, right? If we see, for example, So many people who are disabled, you know, they can never really afford to go to the doctor enough to be able to get that full documentation, right, to sort of prove their disability. There is a distrust of self-diagnosis, right, as if people are sort of faking and making up conditions for themselves. But many people, self-diagnosis is perhaps their only option. Or if you have, um, you know, one diagnosis on your chart, sometimes a second diagnosis can actually result in your care being restricted. This is something we talked about in our um, episode recently with Jules in Taxonomy We Trust, where, you know, Jules was talking about how one of the problems um, when you're getting transition care consistently is that you kind of can't have other mental health diagnoses added to your chart because they could compromise and threaten your care. And so these are all things that are tied up in regimes of biocertification and in the idea that we can find a way to sort of prove who is a true deserving recipient and who is not. Right. And so all of this is to say, um, you know, there's there's a lot more in health communism than what we have just um, talked about here. As we have been talking about much of the projects of the book, um, similar to what we do here on on Death Panel, is trying to really denaturalize a lot of these frames that just been even been talking about in the course of this conversation that we just take as some sort of, um, as, as though they are a given that we, that we do take as naturalized. Right. Um, and essentially point out how useful many of these assumptions that we can accidentally carry with us into the way that we talk about health or healthcare or the way that we organize or agitate for healthcare uh, or health like changes, reforms, whatever, what have you, 
that there there are a number of things that we need to reject in order to be able to build something bigger and more liberatory. And what I would say about this is especially, I think that, you know, the example that B just gave of long COVID and diagnosis, and then also how things like diagnosis or counting things like cases, counting mm-hmm. things like the prevalence of something is used as a method of organizing resources ultimately to limit the amount of resources to the most austere possible, right, is um, something that is very important to understand. I mean, going forward into literally just even into the next decades, if you think about it, you know, as like the time that we are approaching into in the coming decades, the increased uh, stripping away of social supports, old age benefits, things like that in countries internationally, not to mention the increased privatization of previously public social uh, welfare programs, things like that. Um, the expansion of Medicare Advantage, for mm-hmm. example, or whatever, um, which a bunch of people were Great very example. surprised about from that New York Times uh, article that just came out about it. Um, but you know, the as these things uh, expand, you know, a new generation of people, um, a new generation of people who were like maybe formerly workers but who have only known you know gig work essentially are going to be stranded in a hell of for-profit care climate change is going to devastate us not only economically but physically Mm -hmm. right um and in the wake of this ongoing generational plague whether it is because of long covid death uh death like you know death from covid or just other horrible conditions caused downstream of the terrible consequences of the way that we have been abandoned Mm -hmm. to COVID, right? All of these things are going to, if we do not fundamentally, you know, mobilize against capitalism and pose a threat to capitalism and work towards something like a health communism, all of these things are going to only increasingly surplus more and more of us. And so really, I hope that, you know, when people read this and I hope that they do, I hope that you all, I hope that you all read this. Um, I hope that this can, this can be useful for those coming decades of struggle in some way. Yeah. And, you know, not, you might be thinking of like, oh, well, this is going to help me in my healthcare fight. But this, the idea is actually that this is, this is something that, that should help a lot of movements that are working on a lot of different things. You know, this is not just something that is applicable or useful within the realm of fighting for health care, health reforms, or expansion of health resources or COVID policies. You know, this, we hope, can be useful to people who are fighting in their workplace for their own labor benefits, that are fighting to unionize, that are fighting for, like, land back or against uh, climate change or any of these kinds of issues where, you know, we all of all of the issues that that people care about and that people struggle, you know, against are things that touch health. I mean, the social determinants of health are of all the things in our lives that make up for better or for worse our life chances. You know, it's a it's a neutral term there can be positive and negative social determinants of health and all of the work that we all do in all different arenas and all different types of organizing no matter what that is they touch on the social determinants of health that is what struggle seeks to change right and it's you know i i think there's this great line in an essay that ruthie gilmore and craig gilmore wrote um where they say everyone struggles because they have no alternative. And I think our hope is that, you know, having no alternative, that health communism can give you tools to continue your struggle and to struggle in new ways that we have not um, tried in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, yeah. you know, these these are... Um, and, and this is why I think we we really are pushing to look beyond the United States, look beyond the nation, the state, the country, whatever, beyond borders, because none of this is ever contained by any of these artificial constructs that seek to silo 
whether it's people or movements or causes or whatever into different categories. These are all touching on health and health touches on it all. And so, you know, read the book, get the book, buy it, steal it, whatever, however you can. <laughs> if you've um, already bought the book, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful to be able to share it with you all. We've been working on this, the two of us, <laughs> for a long time. Um, and it's just been such a gift to be able to find, you know, to, to be able to talk to people about it and, and hear what they think. So we appreciate everyone that's got it and everyone who has read it and will read it. Thank you. Yeah. Tell your friends what you think of it. Tell us what you think of it. Post about it. Share it. Steal it. Gift it. Whatever. <laughs> exactly. I think that's probably a good place to leave it for today. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order Health Communism, or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. <laughs>